The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed, Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder, the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word, a few moments of silent prayer. So if you need to use 1 John 1, 9 to get back in fellowship, you have that opportunity, and then we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together as a body of believers to study your word, that your word shines its penetrating light upon our thoughts, upon our lives, so that we may, might look, at, look and evaluate and understand things as you understand them, that we might be transformed from the old way of doing things in our old manner of life, our former manner of life, to a life of a redeemed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ who is a maturing growing believer, that you might be glorified. Now, Father, as we look at your word, we pray that we might have the time, the energy, the concentration to study, the honesty and objectivity to see under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit how these things apply to our own lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, verse 13. Romans chapter 8, 13, and we continue our study on the basics of the spiritual life in Romans 6 through 8. Romans 8, and we are down now to about verse 13. Just by way of review, point number one, we are all positionally transformed at the instant of salvation. We are regenerated and we are identified with Christ by virtue of the baptism of God the Holy Spirit. This is called positional truth. We diagram it by focusing on the distinctions between eternal realities and positional or temporal realities. In terms of our eternal realities, these are our eternal possessions from the instant of salvation. We are, we are placed in Christ by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and at that instant God does at least 40 different irreversible things in our lives. We are reconciled to God. We are redeemed. We have been bought with a price so that we are no longer our own, but we belong to God. We are regenerated. We are instantly, at the instant of faith alone in Christ alone, God the Holy Spirit creates and imparts in us a human spirit, and we have a new life in Christ. We are adopted into the family of God, and we are part of the royal family of God. We are a new creation in Christ. We are freed from the power and dominion of the sin nature, even though we still have its presence. 
We are given a new life in Christ and we are to live, Paul says as we studied in Romans 6, 4, in that newness of life. We are sealed by means of God the Holy Spirit and we are indwelt by God the Holy Spirit. But we have a temporal relationship based upon our obedience to God's Word. We call it being filled by means of God the Holy Spirit and it is roughly the same as walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. We are, it is also called walking in the light in Ephesians chapter 5, so that when we sin, we are said to be walking in darkness. As we have seen in our study of Romans 8, we can walk according to the sin nature, or we can walk according to the Holy Spirit. So whenever we sin, we are out of fellowship, we're no longer abiding in Christ, no longer walking by the Spirit, we're walking according to the norms and standards of the sin nature, And we are in carnality and under the control of the sin nature. But no matter how bad things get, there's always recovery. And this is through 1 John 1.9 when we confess our sins. That means to simply admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. And we instantly recover fellowship. Now that is the subject. Positional truth is the subject of Romans chapter 6. This is our new position in Christ. And because of that, the power of the sin nature is broken. So point two, we saw that we have genuine freedom in Christ. This is not freedom to do whatever we want, but freedom to live uh, outside the dominion and tyranny of the sin nature. And point two is that genuine freedom demands responsibility. We are not to be irresponsible, licentious, uh, libertine, but we are to uh, walk as Scripture commands. Genuine freedom demands responsibility, and believers are responsible to live on the basis of their new position in Christ. Everything that we have in Christ makes us uh, spiritual aristocracy, spiritual royalty, and that belongs to every single member of the church in this church age, at the instant of salvation. Now, we have looked at the plan of God, the blueprint, the three stages of salvation, and what I want to emphasize here is the bottom line. At phase one salvation, that instant in time, when we trust Christ alone for our salvation, we are justified and we are freed from the penalty of sin. The power of the sin nature in terms of its tyranny is broken so that during phase two, which is the spiritual life, we can grow or advance in our spiritual growth. And as we do, we are experientially freed from the power of sin so that we can advance Spiritually, Phase three is glorification when we are freed from the presence of the sin nature. Still in terms of review, point three, our new position gives us a new master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We're not independent of a master. Romans 6 says that we are now in bondage to righteousness and in bondage to the Lord Jesus Christ. Point four, man on his own. This gets us into Romans 7. Man on his own, either before salvation or after salvation even with the law, is incapable of doing the good, the intrinsic good, divine good, that which which measures up to the perfect righteousness of God. We can neither do good or avoid evil. Paul says, I can't do the good that I want to do, and the evil that I don't want to do, I can't avoid it. So, man on his own, even with a regenerate nature, even with a, a new spirit, cannot, not the Holy Spirit, with that new human spirit, cannot do what God demands. It requires the aid and assistance of God the Holy Spirit, which means the spiritual life is all 
grace. It doesn't have anything to do with man first gaining approbation with God. First, we, um, we depend upon the cross. Everything was given to us on the cross, and we have the Word of God which, which informs us how to grow. It is the Word of God plus the Spirit of God that is what produces growth in the believer's life. Point five, only through a moment-by-moment dependence on the Holy Spirit can we advance to spiritual adulthood and spiritual maturity. And this is called walking according to the Spirit in Romans chapter 8 and walking by means of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, verse 16 and following. Now, as we have arrived in Romans chapter 8 where the subject shifts to the winner believer, the advancing successful believer... There are several comparisons that are made here. So we want to build a chart. There are two types of believers in Romans chapter 8. Two types of believers in Romans chapter 8. There's the successful believer versus the failure believer. Now by a failure, that doesn't mean that you can lose your salvation. We know that there is nothing we can ever do to lose our salvation. We do nothing to gain or earn our salvation. So there is nothing we can do to lose our salvation. We have seen in our study of the Gospel of John that we are held, we are kept in the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are kept in the Father's hands. That's a double grip that cannot be broken. So we can't lose our salvation, but we can suffer loss of rewards and inheritance according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So what are these two? There are two lifestyles explained in Romans 8, verse 4. Two opposing lifestyles of the believer. I'm not talking about believer versus unbeliever. I'm talking about believer, truly born again believers. The successful believer lives his life according to the Spirit. The imagery of walking, peripateo in the Greek, the imagery of walking is that moment by moment dependence. And it is a metaphor of a lifestyle. So we have either a lifestyle that is according to the Spirit. It is kata plus the accusative in the Greek, which means according to the norm or standard. And so we're either walking according to the norms and standards of the Holy Spirit, or we are walking according to the norms and standards of the sin nature. Now we have studied the sin nature, and we have seen in our diagram of the sin nature that the sin nature produces in two areas. The inner dynamic that drives the sin nature are all the various lust patterns. Approbation lust, power lust, money lust, crusader lust, sex lust, power lust, all sorts of lust. But the sin nature produces human good. Human good is all the good deeds that people do, all the religious activity. The Pharisees were not believers, but they were some of the most moral, righteous people in a human sense that ever lived on the planet. And that is a production of the sin nature. The Bible says, we saw clearly in Romans 6, that every single believer is unbeliever is enslaved to the sin nature. So everything an unbeliever does flows from the power source of the sin nature. They are said to be in the flesh. We saw this in Romans 8.8. The unbeliever is in the flesh, in the sin nature. But unbelievers can have a measure of morality, a measure of integrity, a measure of virtue. This is human good. It it, it does not measure up to the perfect righteousness of God. So this is the area of strength where we are strong. Also production in the area of weakness is personal sins. 
So when we talk about the fact that as a believer you can walk according to the norms and standards of the sin nature, this means that you can be walking according in, in human good. You can be involved in all sorts of religious activity, church activity, coming to Bible class uh, once or twice a week. You can uh, talk the talk and walk the walk and look good to everybody. But inside, you're not advancing spiritually. You're a failure as a believer. You're not understanding doctrine. You're not going anywhere. You're just playing the game with God. And this can all be nothing more than subterfuge under the guise of human good rather than divine good. There are two ways of thinking. Thinking according to doctrine, what we call divine viewpoint. The Bible presents one coherent, consistent viewpoint on every detail of life, and that is God's viewpoint. It is called truth with a capital T in the Scriptures. It is called uh, it is the Word of God, and we call it divine viewpoint or doctrine. All the teaching of Scripture in every area of life. And we are to re- renovate our thinking. We are to renew our minds, Romans 12:2 says, according to divine viewpoint, according to doctrine. So the believer that is successful is going to be walking according to the Spirit, going to be filled with the Spirit, learning doctrine and applying doctrine. It's not just a matter of coming to Bible class, filling up your notebook with information, and going home and thinking that because you know a lot, you know the terminology, and you know about events in the Bible, and you can uh, talk and communicate in a certain, with certain vocabulary, that it is really part of your internal soul as what the Bible calls epinosis or full knowledge that is productive for spiritual growth. As a believer, we either operate on doctrine or we're operating on Worldly thinking. Worldliness is a thought form. We call it human viewpoint or paganism, pagan thought. And so we have human viewpoint and paganism, and we're seeing the contrast in that in our study in Sunday morning in Judges. There are two ways of thinking, one or the other. You can be a believer and operating on all sorts of worldly ideas and concepts, worldly problem-solving devices, how to make things work in your life, how to solve your problems, and it doesn't do any good. It just produces failure. There are two results outlined in Romans 8.6. The first is life and peace. If you're walking according to the Spirit, learning doctrine and applying doctrine, and living according to divine viewpoint, then the result is a fullness of life. Jesus called it the abundant life. And peace. Peace with God, stability, tranquility. The other result, for the failure believer who's walking according to the sin nature, life comes up with emptiness. There is temporal or carnal death. There is misery. If you want to have a life that is made up of failure after failure, that is made up of one disaster after another, then just walk according to the sin nature and think that you really don't need to be getting doctrine on a day-by-day basis. So I said, Sunday, that's one reason we have the tape ministry, is because we all need to be reminded of God's Word day in and day out, continuously. It's not just a matter of showing up and hearing a message on Sunday morning or on Wednesday night. It has to be continuous. We have to change everything about how we think. And this does not happen just in one-hour segments once a week. When you think about how much pressure there is on us from the cosmic system, 
how many ideas that we think are really wonderful that are not biblical, that, we, that we've managed to buy into, that make our life work, or seemingly make it, they seem to make it work. And, uh, and the purpose of the Christian life and coming to church is to renovate our thinking. We can't get rid of all that, that, those false concepts by just an hour a week. It needs to be continuous. You need to be listening to tapes. There needs to be this continuous washing of the mind with the water of the Word. There are two attitudes towards God in this section. To please God, the believer that is advancing according to the Spirit it has as his priority pleasing God, so doctrine becomes the highest priority. Nothing takes its place. He makes sure that no matter what happens, he's always going to be in Bible class Every time, unless it's an emergency, sometimes work interferes in other things, and that's why you can back it up with tapes. The believer who is operating on the sin nature becomes complacent towards God, and the Scripture says their attitude is hostile towards God. Now, they may say, oh, I'm not hostile. I can tell you any number of people that are just sweet and lovely and moral, and they're involved in all sorts of religious activities, said they're not submitted to doctrine at all. They're not letting it change the way they think. They are indeed hostile to God, but they don't have a hostile attitude, so everybody thinks they're just wonderful. There are two different kinds, and what we're going to come to tonight when we look at verse 13 and following is that there are two different categories of sons. There are sons indeed in verse 14, and then there are children in verse 16. There are two different kinds of heirs mentioned in verse 17. There are the heirs of God and Christ, and then there are those who are only heirs of God. There are two categories of inheritance. There is that inheritance that belongs to every single believer at the uh, time of our glorification. All believers will have regenerate bodies. All believers will have eternity in heaven. All believers will have will be absent of the, or lack the sin nature. But uh, not all believers will have the same privileges, positions, and responsibilities in the kingdom of God. And that is determined by what we do here and now in terms of our training. Life on this earth, three score and ten, or however long or short it may be, is your basic training to determine what your place is in the kingdom of God, in the millennial kingdom, and in eternity. So let's look at the passage. Romans 8.13, Paul says, For if you are living according to the flesh. This continues the contrast. The if clause here is a first class condition. He's assuming it to be true. If, assuming that you live according to the flesh, the automatic result is death. Now, it's obvious he's not talking about eternal condemnation. Because in verse uh, 12, he addresses this to brethren. So then, brethren, we first person plural pronoun indicating both the apostle himself and his readers, we are under obligation. Unbelievers are not under obligation, so he can only be addressing believers. So then, brethren, we, believers, are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. And then there's a uh, appositional explanation. It starts with a gar in the Greek which means he is giving a reason or explanation for this statement. Further development, he says, For if you are living according to the flesh, you there is the part of the we, the believers living according to the flesh, you must die. 
but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. And last time I pointed out that if the living here is eternal life, then the way to get it is to put to death the deeds of the sin nature. And that's works. So the life here cannot be eternal life in heaven. It must be something else. And if the life is not eternal life in heaven, then the contrast, the death in the passage, the contrast with the life, can't be eternal condemnation in the lake of fire. Therefore, Paul is not talking about death in terms of eternal condemnation or life in terms of eternal salvation. He is talking about what happens in time in terms of experiencing temporal or carnal death, eventually culminating in divine discipline, of the divine discipline of the sin unto death, or living the abundant life. So we either live according to the norms and standards of the, of the sin nature, which results in carnal death, or if by the Spirit walking, by means of the Spirit, then you live. And notice, if you walk, and that's the living by the Spirit, the verb there is left out, that's called an ellipsis. It's left out, but it's assumed to be there. If living by the Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body. Now, putting to death is an active verb there, which means you, the believer, are engaged in doing something. You're engaged in saying no to the sin nature. You can't just say as a believer, well, it really doesn't matter. Somehow God's going to work it out. He paid for all the sin, so I can just do what I want. This addresses the volition of the believer and the fact that as a believer we need to be learning doctrine and it must mean something. It means that we apply it and we say no to the sin nature and we stay in fellowship and we avoid temptation. The only way you can do that is through the power of the Spirit. You can't do it by pulling up your your moral, spiritual bootstraps apart from the Spirit. That's what Paul tried in Romans 7, and it was a failure. It has to be done by staying in the Spirit, walking according to the Spirit, and walking by means of the Spirit under the filling of the Spirit. So you are putting to death the deeds of the body. You will live. So it's talking about the advancing, maturing believer who is moving towards this abundant life. That's the context. If you don't understand that, you will misinterpret the next four verses. Verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit, these are sons of God. So the, what we have to do, we look at verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We have a problem here. The problem is that it is standard for us to take a verse like this as equivalent to, the, to John's use of sons of God in John 1.12. That's a verse everybody should have memorized. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God, even to those who believe on His name. Now in that verse we read, For, uh, But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to be called the sons of God. So that is a starting point, and there it recognizes sonship as a positional factor. As a positional factor. As I stated earlier when we had the, the left and right circle diagram there, that as when we enter into that left circle at the instant of salvation, we're adopted into the family of God, and we are given the positional title, sons of God. That is a technical term that comes out of the uh, Latin or Roman background, and we will see its implication in a few minutes. But that is not the way Paul is using the term here. 
in this passage, I want you to notice, just look down to verse um, 15. For you have not received a spirit or an attitude of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out. But he's talking about a particular kinds of son. In verse 16 and 17, he shifts from talking about the huios, the adult son, to the technon, the technos, the child of God, the infant, the baby. So he's not looking at this in terms of the position of adoption here as adulthood. He's looking at it experientially, and we've seen that's the whole context of Romans 6 through 8 is the experience of the Christian life not entering into the Christian life. So there's a couple of points we have to observe in the contrast between this passage and John 1.12. First of all, at the instant of salvation, every believer is regenerated and adopted into the royal family of God. That is a non-experiential reality. You don't feel like it. You don't get a piece of paper that says you're now adopted, but that is the reality. That's why you are sealed by the Spirit. It's God's, as we say down in Texas, you've been branded by God, and that mark of ownership is there forever. Point number two. At the instant of salvation, we're all spiritual babies. We're all infants spiritually. So experientially, we are infants. Positionally, we are sons. Point number three. A huios is a term for an adult son. Huios in the Greek refers to an adult son. And this is our, our position, but is not our experience. That only comes through spiritual growth. Point number four, in John 1.12, it is possible to understand the term there of be called the sons of God in terms of the ultimate purpose for our salvation. In terms of that is our ultimate purpose. Remember, God saved us to be mature. He didn't save us to be babies. He didn't save us. You You hear some people every now and then say, well, I'll just be glad to be in heaven whether I'm in the ghetto or in a mansion. I don't care as long as I'm there. Well, I think people will care. Um, John certainly emphasizes in 1 John the fact that there will be shame at the judgment seat of Christ to believers who are failures. We are saved to advance to maturity, not to remain babies. So it's possible to understand John John 1.12 that, that we are called sons of God because that is what we are to be. Point number five, several passages indicate that sonship in the in the New Testament, is a result of character development, not simply faith alone in Christ alone. Let me say that again. There are several passages that indicate that sonship is a result of character transformation, not simply faith alone in Christ alone. But salvation, entering into the family of God, gaining eternal life in heaven, is not by work not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saves us by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. So it's not by works. So how do we handle this? If sonship is automatic at salvation, then these verses make it sound as if works accompany salvation or produce salvation. Let's look at a couple of them. Matthew 5, 44 and 45. But I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that's the main command, the primary imperative of 44, to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Purpose clause. 
Verse 45, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Well, their sonship is conditioned upon loving your enemies and praying for those who persecute you. Well, in other passages, like John 1.12, it seems like sonship is based simply on accepting Christ as your Savior. So, obviously, there are different facets of sonship. There is the positional reality of our adoption, and then there is the experience of our growth and advance to sonship. Matthew 5.9 Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Once again, it looks as if being called the Son of God is dependent upon doing something. But that would be work salvation. So there is a sense in which becoming an adult son is experiential growth, not just positional reality. We see this again in Revelation 21.7. He who overcomes shall inherit these things. Well, all of a sudden we see that inheritance is tied in with adoption. And we'll come to that in a minute. He who overcomes shall inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. So it looks from that passage like sonship is conditioned upon overcoming. But what about the passages that make it seem as if I'm a son at salvation? We have to distinguish between positional reality and temporal reality. Romans 8.15 Romans 8.15 says, For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now we have to stop a minute to take a look at the translation here because it's a, a little bit confusing. Starts off with an explanatory particle called gar. Gar always gives you a reason or a cause. And what we have here structurally is very interesting in your English. Notice that verse 13 begins with four. 14 begins with four. 15 begins with four. That tells you that Paul is building up a series of explanations. Now last time I pointed out when we studied verses uh, 7 through 10, through 11, that starting in verse 9, you have a series of but ifs. But if anyone in 9b. But if, that's how verse 10 should be translated, but if Christ is in you. It's the same phrase in the Greek, a de, meaning but if Christ is in you. And then verse 11, but if the Spirit of Him. says he's building a contrast there. That's why he's using those conditional clauses with the, with the um, uh, con, uh, conjunction of contrast. But he's doing something different in 13 through 15. He's building explanations. He's staying on the same subject of the believer and building one explanation upon another. Now here he says in verse 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery. Now, what in the world is a spirit of slavery? Now the word spirit... Here is the same word we find with the Holy Spirit and many other phrases are translated spirit or breath. It's the Greek word pneuma. P-N-E-U-M-A. Now the word pneuma has a variety of meanings. It can mean wind. It can mean breath. It can mean spirit in the sense of the human spirit. 
It can even stand for the soul in some places, that uh, as the spirit and soul are united together in the regenerated believer, sometimes to emphasize one aspect or the other, the, the combination is called either the soul or the spirit, where both are in view. Sometimes it simply refers to the immaterial part of man in contrast to the material part of man. And in other passages, it refers to angels or demons. Now, there are some folks who, uh, when they get to a passage like this, they immediately want to jump to that demon explanation. You'll also have passages that talk about a spirit of bitterness and a spirit of anger. And they'll immediately want to explain that as, as, oh, this is a demon. See, if you have a problem with, with anger in your life or you have a problem with bitterness, it's because you've got that demon bothering you and you just have to expel that demon. Well, that's just bad Greek and lousy theology. The word spirit also can mean, according to Bauer, Art, and Gingrich, a disposition or a state of mind. A mental attitude, in other words. A disposition or a state of mind. A mental attitude. So if somebody has a spirit of bitterness, that means they're characterized by an attitude of bitterness. They have a spirit of anger, that means they're characterized by an attitude of anger. Well, here, what Paul is talking about is that attitude that comes on the believer who is failing to recognize what he has in Christ so that he is no longer relying upon his positional reality of Romans 6 and he is choosing to sin and put himself back under dominion to the sin nature. Now, that was broken by the cross, broken by baptism of the Holy Spirit, but each time you sin... You, by your volition, are saying, okay, I'm going to put myself back under the tyranny of my sin nature. So Paul says, for you, explanation, you believers did not receive at salvation this attitude of slavery leading to fear again. See, fear seems to be the core emotion of the, produced by the sin nature. Beneath everything else, beneath arrogance, beneath bitterness, beneath everything else, is fear. What is the first thing that happened when God appeared in the garden with Adam and Eve? They were afraid. John addresses this in 1 John 4, 17 and following. He says, perfect love or mature love casts out what? Fear. Now, what's the relationship of fear and love? Most people would say, well, the opposite of love is hatred. And the opposite of fear is peace. But what the Scripture points out is the core underlying emotions that are produced by the sin nature. And fear is a lack of of security. It's man suddenly realizing he's a creature that he really can't solve his problems on his own and he is confronted with God. It is the, the fear in the sense of the healthy respect and awe that Isaiah had instantly when he fell on his face when he saw the holiness of God. In that sense, it's not the sinful emotion of fear of the Lord that is a positive, uh, the awe and respect for God, realizing His creatureliness. But when you're in carnality, it is a fear that eats up the soul and destroys. And the only solution is becoming mature and advancing in the spiritual life to the point that we have that kind of love that Jesus commanded that in, uh, as the new commandment in John 13, 34, and 35, that we love one another as Christ has loved us. 
Now Paul says here, for you have not, you as a believer, did not receive an attitude of slavery to the sin nature which leads to fear again. That's the expanded translation. But instead, you have received a disposition or attitude of adoption. See, this is your positional reality. You are adopted as a son. That is your reality. Now, that is not a, that is not some sort of, of um, patriarchal term that is used to disparage women. You know, we just have to put up, up with all the uh, lousy verbal shenanigans of the feminazi crowd. And uh, every time something like that comes up, they want to change the Bible and take all the he's and she's out and make everything refer to, uh, to something uh, non-sexual or non-gender specific. And that just reflects a lot of human viewpoint paganism. What we have in the Scriptures is that God is represented as a he, not because he is sexual, because he is asexual, but because he is the one in authority. God has, ad- has established a clear hierarchy. And in the Roman culture of the day, the inheritance by primogenitor went to the eldest son. And so every believer, male or female, is considered in that specific privileged position of an heir in the royal family of God. So this is not some sexist term that is running down women. It is a very technical term, and it means that we have all of the privileges and rights that are granted to the eldest son in a Roman society, and that applies to everyone in the body of Christ, because with the baptism of the Holy Spirit, there is no longer junior Greek, male nor female, bond or slave. And what that means is under the Jewish economy, in the Mosaic Law, that if you were a woman, you could not go enter into the, the inner part of the tabernacle or the temple at all. You were restricted. If you were a Gentile, you were restricted. If you were a slave, you were restricted. But in the church age, no one is restricted. Sex, uh, economic status, slavery status are no longer issues for access to God. Every believer is a priest, a royal priest in the royal family of God, and has the same equal access to God and the same privileges. And that's all part of our sonship. So when we look at Romans 8.15, there is the contrast between an attitude of slavery, this is the attitude of the failure believer who keeps putting himself under the dominion of his own sin nature, and the one who recognizes his position in Christ as spiritual aristocracy and is now going to use that position to advance to spiritual maturity. Now, as we get into this, we have to take some time to look at the doctrine of adoption. This is a, uh, <clears throat> quite a cultural difference for us. What we have to realize is that the Bible must always be interpreted in the time in which it was written. We can't look at these terms like sons of God, adoption, and other things from a Western civilization, North American frame of reference. We have to understand the culture and historical context in which this was, was used. So this is, a, is borrowed from both Roman and Greek culture. We're going to look at the doctrine under two different categories, the historical background, and secondly, its doctrinal significance. First, it's historical background. 
The practice of adoption is used in the Bible to illustrate the new position of the believer in his relationship to God. It is the new position of the believer in his relationship to God. Adoption in the ancient world is different from modern adoption in that in modern adoption you're taking a child that is not born to the family naturally and you are bringing them into the family and making them a legal member of that family. But in the ancient world, you could even adopt your own natural son. Adoption in the ancient world, especially in Roman culture, had to do with adult privileges and inheritance. Adult privileges and inheritance. So in terms of historical background, we need to look at two different practices because both play a role in understanding what Paul is saying the Greek practice of adoption, and the Roman practice of adoption. Let's look at the Greek practice first. In Greece, the practice emphasized family relationship. It emphasized family relationship. A man during his life, or by will after his death, could adopt any male citizen into the privileges of his own family. So he might die and in his will state that he wanted... uh, John Smith from down the street to be adopted into his family and to become his legal heir. But there was always a condition placed upon that adoption. And that was that the adopted son had to accept the legal responsibilities and the religious duties of a real son. It wasn't just that he's designated as such by the the will, but he has to use his volition and accept the responsibilities the obligation that went with that. Now, use that term obligation because Paul uses it in verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation as believers not to the sin nature, to live according to the sin nature. And then he breaks off in what's called apostiopesis, which is a sudden break in thought because he's getting a little emotional. Not according to the flesh, but finish the sentence, but according to the Spirit. We do have an obligation as believers, a responsibility, because we have been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are now owned by the Lord Jesus Christ. We are in His family. So that's where this idea comes. I think Paul has more the Greek idea in mind when he talks about certain aspects, and and sometimes the Roman idea sort of blends the two together. When Paul emphasizes the familial aspects of our adoption including inheritance, he has this Greek custom in mind that the, the son must accept that responsibility and, and live out those responsibilities and those duties. And I think it's here that, that Paul is using this in Romans 8 because he's emphasizing the reality of our adoption as positional truth. And then in Romans 8, the application, we have to accept that responsibility to live as son. The Roman system of adoption was much more severe and demanding and put a heavy emphasis on the authority of the father over the son. It was the law of the patria potestis. Patria meaning father and potestis, power. Where we get our word omnipotence, potence, power. The power of the father, the authority of the father. A son is little better than a slave until adulthood. That's the background for understanding many of the factors in Galatians chapter 4 on adoption over there. The Roman custom emphasized the authority of the Father and it was designed to protect the aristocracy of Rome and to preserve 
the inheritance. So that if the natural son grew up and he was incompetent and he was irresponsible, then the father could choose another heir, another son, adopt him, and then pass on the family name and fortune to this adopted heir, thus preserving the family lineage and the family property. The procedure of adoption began with a ceremony. There was a purchase called redemption, where it was a symbolic uh, purchase where the new son, there was a purchase price paid and the adopted son was uh, was paid for his freedom. So he is, in a sense, he is redeemed from bondage, just as the believer is redeemed from bondage to the slave market of sin. Once he accepts that purchase then he becomes he comes under the authority of his new father he moves from the authority of his natural father to the authority of his new father just as the believer shifts from being under the authority of the kingdom of satan to the authority of god that's what happens we transfer authorities at salvation we don't become our own boss in roman adoption inheritance is emphasized more than blood relationship And the point is the preservation of property. In the first 14 years in the Roman system, the son is put under a slave called a pedagogue, and that's the emphasis in Galatians uh, 4. And the pedagogue is responsible and to bring him home and discipline, and that is used by Paul as the role of the Mosaic Law for the immature believer in terms of looking at it as a timeline of history that the human race is immature before the cross, more complete after the cross. So once the cross comes, then the believer is moved from slavery to the law to freedom. That's the background over there. Now the point of all this is to preserve inheritance and to pass it on. So God has an inheritance for us. Now what is the doctrinal significance? The doctrinal significance is that the believer now has the position of being a son of God. He now is, has that position and we are to decide whether or not we are to live up to those responsibilities. That's the background for understanding um, Romans 8.16 or 8, uh, 8.14 where it says, For all who are being led by the Spirit of God. This is not talking about every believer. This is talking about the advancing believers who are willing to follow the leadership of the Holy Spirit. The immature believer, the failure believer who who is in carnality the whole time, isn't learning doctrine, isn't applying doctrine, isn't putting to death the deeds of the flesh. That's the immature believer. That's the contrast. So the one who is putting to death the deeds of the body will live. This is the one who is being led by the Spirit. The Greek word there is ago, which implies... Ago implies volition on the part of the person who is following. The Holy Spirit is out in front and the person following makes decisions to follow. It is not like the verb that is used in uh, 1 Peter chapter 1, 20 and 21, which, where uh, Pharaoh where it talks about uh, the prophets were moved by the Holy Spirit. That's like the wind pushing a sailboat along a, a lake or out in the ocean. There's no volition involved there. They were just moved along by the superintending, guiding uh, uh, force of God the Holy Spirit in inspiration. 
It's a different word. Ago involves that our volition is clearly involved. We have to decide whether or not we're going to follow, whether or not we're going to walk by means of the Holy Spirit. So it is those who are willing to be led and to follow and walk by means of the Spirit that are sons of God. So these are the two sonships. The sonship of positional relationship and the sonship of those who advance to sonship. And it is only the adult sons that are going to be qualified to have an inheritance in the kingdom of God and to rule and reign. And so sonship is the result of maturity. We are not to just fold up our hands and remain immature. One of my favorite quotes is from Earl Rodmacher, now Chancellor of Western Conservative Baptist Seminary, and his statement is that the evangelical church in America is the largest nursery in the world. And the problem is that very few people have a vision for getting the inhabitants out of their diapers. And that's exactly true. Most churches, most pastors don't even know how to get a, how to go from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood, much less able to provide the leadership for their congregation to move them doctrinally from spiritual infancy to spiritual adulthood. So that's the point here, that we have to reach adulthood because that is God's goal for us. Now, verse 15 introduces the concept of adoption again, and then it is tied by the time we get to verse 16 and 17 to inheritance. Now, I want you to look at this. When we come to 8.16, the Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. The only point I want to make there is that this is our human spirit. This is nonverbal communication. And it is restricted to assurance of salvation. You'll always find the charismatics come along and the Holy Spirit's communicating all kinds of nonsense to their spirit. And it's nothing more than... I always ask the question, well, how do you distinguish between that and indigestion? How do you know you just didn't have something too spicy for dinner? Now, you had some dream or vision last night. I'll never forget the time my college roommate and I ordered a couple of double jalapeno pizzas one night when we were in college. The nightmares we had that night. All that Romans 8.16 is saying is that the Holy Spirit is... Just as the Holy Spirit convicts the unbeliever of his unbelief and of unrighteousness and of judgment in John chapter 16. This is the same kind of term. It's martyreo here, which is a legal courtroom term, just as elenko is in John chapter 16, and is simply a term that the Holy Spirit is confirming to us non-verbally a sense of assurance that we are believers. We are in the family of God. Now, when you get to Romans 8, 16, and 17, the problem is punctuation in the English Bible. You've all seen this before, but I don't want you to forget it, so we keep repeating it. Look at this sentence up on the overhead here. Now, how would you punctuate that sentence? I just want you to think about it in your head. How do you punctuate that sentence? Now, in most groups, a woman will punctuate it like this. A woman... Colon. Without her, comma, man is nothing. A woman, colon, without her, comma, man is nothing. Now, most men will punctuate it like this. A woman, comma, without her man, comma, is nothing. 
Now see, in the original Greek, there's no punctuation. You don't have commas or semicolons or quotation marks. Everything is done uh, through syntax. That's why it's so important to understand the original Greek. It's also important to understand theology because sometimes even the syntax isn't that clear. Now look at verse 17. Verse 17 says, And if children, comma, in the English, heirs also, comma, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now that links heirs of God and fellow heirs with God with the conjunction chi as if they're synonymous. And then you have a comma after Christ and then a conditional, first class conditional clause. If indeed we suffer with Him so that we may also be glorified with Him. The way that is punctuated means that that verse is saying you cannot be an heir of God or joint heir with Christ unless you suffer with Christ. That's how that's punctuated. That's what that means. In other words, inheritance, which is part of your salvation package at some level, is dependent upon, upon that translation, upon suffering with Christ. Once again, that's a works-oriented salvation. Now, that verse can be repunctuated by simply moving the comma. If you take this comma right here, after Christ, and move it up here and put it after God, then it reads like this. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God, comma, first kind of category of heirship, and fellow heirs with Christ if we suffer with Him. See, that means there's an heirship with God that is common to every believer that is part of your package of salvation. And then there's an additional inheritance that comes as a result of maturing and willingness to suffer for your faith and grow and mature through that suffering as you advance to spiritual adulthood. If children also, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, once you understand that, it really makes it clear what's going on in another passage. I don't have time. I'll come back next time to finish out Doctrine of Airship. But I just want to look at one other passage as we wrap up. Turn to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 through 13. And here we have a po- doctrine put to poetry in these three verses, and it's a very controversial problem passage. But once you understand that there are different categories of inheritance, and that believers who advance to the second category have the privilege of reigning with Christ, and those who are failures are going to enter into heaven yet as through fire, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, then it makes all the difference. These are all first-class conditions, by the way. For if, and we assume it's true that we died with Him, that's positional death, identification with Christ and His death, burial, and resurrection, Romans 6, 1 through 4. For if we died with Him... We shall also live with Him. That's a true statement. If you are identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of salvation, then you will live with Him. Eternal life in heaven forever and ever. Second clause, if we endure, we shall also reign with Him. Now this puts a condition on reigning, and that's endurance. But not every believer is going to endure. Not every believer is going to persevere. Some will fall away. They will not all abide. They are that third branch in John 15 that is gathered up and uh, taken to judgment. 
If we endure, we shall also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. Now, some take that second clause as meaning that there is a loss of salvation. That there are those who endure and they will reign and every believer will reign. And those who deny Him, well, they will be denied. But that's not what it is saying because it turns around in verse 13 and says, if we are faithless, that's a believer who returns his back on his faith, if we are faithless, He remains faithful, for He cannot deny Himself. Now, verse 12 is the issue. Verse 12 is focusing on the advancing believer. If we endure, we shall reign with Him. That is rewards, and that is position in the kingdom. If we deny Him, He will deny us rewards and position in the kingdom. That's the loss of rewards. The, the believer who denies Christ denies his authority in his life and does not advance to maturity, but goes out and lives as he will, will lose rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Instead of having gold, silver, and precious stones, he will have wood, hay, and straw. And so Christ will deny him at that point, not in terms of salvation, but in terms of rewards. He will lose everything and enter into heaven, yet as through fire. And But the faithfulness of the Lord to saving us is verse 13. If we are faithless, even if we are faithless, and all we ever do is put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ and ten minutes later decide, well, that was a stupid decision, we're still saved. He remains faithful because He said, all you have to do is believe. One moment in time, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. You can never lose it. He's faithful to His Word and He cannot deny Himself. So the issue is, what kind of believer do you want to be? There, is, there are those who are failures and those who are successful. And it depends on your volition. It depends on renovating your soul by the truth of God's Word. It depends on your volition and your priority. Because God's grace is sufficient for any situation, any problem, any difficulty in life. And the issue is whether or not you're going to make learning God's Word the priority because that's the only way you're going to learn the assets. That's the only way you're going to learn the skills, the spiritual problem-solving devices, and the spiritual skills necessary to advance and mature in the spiritual life. So next time we'll come back and wrap up with the doctrine of inheritance as we continue our study with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank You for Your for your grace, your goodness, that you have provided everything for us in the, in the battle of spiritual warfare, in the battle of warfare with our own sin nature, and in the battle with worldly cosmic thinking. That this is all based on grace. You have given us everything, and all we have to do is learn how to use it, take the time to devote ourselves to understanding these spiritual principles, submit ourselves to your authority, being filled with the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, abiding in Christ, and advancing to maturity. We pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have learned, that we might realize that we have been saved for a purpose, and that is to live in newness of life, to advance to maturity as adult sons, that you might be glorified. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.